This is rather like dropping a nuclear bomb on fiat currencies. They now have to keep printing or we crash. We've got this ticking time bomb. Talking gold with the one and only Andrew McGuire. Welcome to Live from the Vault. Hi, my name is Shane Moran, and I'll be your host for this week's episode of Live from the Vault. And welcome to the show that goes beyond the headlines and uncovers the truth about the precious metals industry and the effects on the global economy in these historic times. We have exclusive access to experts and insiders, and we reveal information and insights that you simply won't find anywhere else. Now, this week, we have the one and only Andrew McGuire, precious metals expert and whistleblower in the vault. And to help him pull back the curtain, we'll be joined by popular demand, by the way, from our entire uh, live from the vault community, good friend of the vault, of course, industry expert Alistair McLeod is in the house. That's right, Alistair McLeod is in the vault, and you're not going to want to miss this conversation with Andrew McGuire. So, just before we get started here, please help us spread the word about this channel. Hit that like button if you haven't already done it. Share this information and also make sure you're subscribed. Now, if you click on that bell right there, you'll be notified as each episode goes live. Now, for those newer to the community and you haven't met Alistair yet, he uh, started his career, I'll just tell you a little bit about him, In back as a stockbroker in London on the stock exchange in 1970. And subsequently, he's been an investment manager and an, an executive director for an offshore bank in Guernsey and the head of research for gold money. And with that, Let's head over to the UK and talking gold with the one and only Andrew McGuire and our special guest, Mr. Alistair McLeod. Over to you, Andy. Do you know what, Alistair? Honestly, um, uh, there are no. I'm no, so excited when you come on board, and I think um, this is something. It's very special, and um, you know, you, you are you definitely have a, a, a mind that um, I really love to get into it is um, you understand so much of the bigger picture uh, all the way from monetary history all the way to uh, and, and when you distill what's going on right here and right now, it's an algorithm and, and, it, and really um, it's so important to get your view on on the on really what you're seeing now with all of that um you know that all of that knowledge um and information and um but you know Alistair, i know you've been right now i can't wait to talk to you about this you've been focusing on something which of course the mainstream media is deliberately glossing over um and this is the emergence of a gold-backed commodity currency uh this could roll out in several forms but Obviously, each one will will severely impact uh, this current leverage uh, paper to um, physical market gold balance. But but I think obviously it's it's your work on the ruble and 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 backing of the ruble. Now, obviously, we've been looking at Glasgow's uh, commodity currencies and how forms that take. But this is something worth knowing. Thanks for coming on, Alistair. Well, it's very much my pleasure. <laughs> what can I tell you? <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, but the, the, the ruble thing is fascinating. Um, mm. I think everybody reckons that, I mean, you know, if you, if you, you know, sort of follow economic theory and all the rest of it as it's taught in schools, then, um, you know, a higher um, 
trade de- trade surplus is good for your currency. Well, no, not really, because um, currencies are actually more driven, in, in, certainly in the fiat currency world, which is what we have. They're actually driven by faith and credit in the fiat currency. So um, as an opener, I mean, how much faith and credit does anyone have in the ruble? <laughs> Zero. Mm. You know? And worse than that, um, if you look at the history of the ruble, uh, really since about nine, well, the early 1990s, I mean, bear in mind that in 1998, they had a 1,000 for one consolidation. Mm. So if you, if you look at the price of oil in rubles um, and go back to 1992, then uh, at that time, um, the ruble price adjusted for that of a barrel of oil was about seven and a half rubles for a barrel of oil. Now it's what? Seven and a half thousand rubles mm. for a barrel mm. of oil. And so you can see how much the ruble has lost purchasing power against the dollar. And the dollar itself, we all know since then, has lost an awful lot of purchasing power measured by gold, which is, if you like, the the only honest monetary standard. Um, the, uh, the idea that forcing up energy prices, which is what Putin and Saudis are doing between them at the moment, the idea that that's going to be good for the ruble, forget it. Um, it's going to be worse for the ruble than it is for the dollar. Because what happens? You know, forget the trade surpluses, deficits, whatever. I mean, basically, you get out of uncertainty and you get into something which you feel familiar with. In other words, people will sell rubles and buy dollars, um, which they've been doing already. Uh, you know, even while the price of oil has risen from, where was it? It was negative briefly in April mm-hmm. 2020. Yeah. Um, and we're currently looking at 90 going on 100. So, um, you know, the rub. I can tell you that the oil price is no friend to the ruble. And this is very, very important because uh, Putin, um, in conjunction with the Saudis, has embarked on um, a policy of driving up uh, particularly heating oil prices and diesel, which is its, you know, slightly lighter cousin. Um, uh, and, um, you know, that is going to have an enormous impact on uh, the inflation rates in the West as you may imagine. I mean, first of all, heating oil, wow, you know, <laughs> we're getting into the Northern Hemisphere winter. Uh, and uh, if you look at um, uh, uh, diesel, I mean, over 95% of our logistics is diesel. So mm-hmm. the higher price of diesel affects the the price of virtually everything. And But the problem that Putin has, which is what I identified in that article, is that the more he pursues this policy, the more he undermines his own currency. So what that means is that while he can make the Germans shiver in Germany, by God, they'll be damn well freezing in Saudi in, 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 in Siberia. Um, and that is potentially politically destabilizing for him. The only thing that P- Putin can do, and I know that uh, from, uh, you know, Sergei Glazyev's writings and all the rest of it, um, and I know that uh, he has Putin's ear, um, there's a very famous picture of Putin proudly holding a 400 ounce bar of gold and all the rest of it and looking at it lovingly. I mean, you know, mm. this guy, I think, does understand gold. I mean, perhaps not as much as you and I, but <laughs> but we set a fairly high bar, I like to think, on that one. But Glaziev certainly gets it. And um, what this means is that as the ruble begins to weaken, and we've got roughly one ruble, one cent now. I mean, it's damn mm. nearly that. 
um, then uh, he is going to be forced to put the ruble onto a gold standard. Now, it's actually quite easy for him to do so. If you look at the underlying uh, economic numbers, I mean, um, uh, Russian debt to GDP is around about 17.5%. This year, it'll probably go up to about 20 um, you look at um, the uh, tax rate is 13% for, for individuals, 20% for companies. So actually, um, the Russian economy is in a position where um, if it had a stable currency, it would be rather like the British economy in 1820, 1830. I mean, you know, with an enormous amount of potential. Um, and I think also that, I mean, if I was in Putin's shoes, I would want to set a... Um, uh, 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 if you like, something in motion which allows the economy to do well without it having to sacrifice its birthright, its birthright being all those commodities which are available for export. I mean, you're basically selling the family silver all the time. <laughs> if you remember, that was what Harold Macmillan said about Maggie Thatcher. Yes. Um, you know, this is, this is something which actually um, is easy to manage. And you will understand this because um, when um, the Central Bank of Russia, I mean, I would recommend it splits into two. You've got an issuing side, which controls the um, interest rate, as it were. And uh, its mandate is quite simple. You uh, use the interest rate to manage the gold stock. That's important. And it gets fully convertible to anyone who wants to exchange rules back for it. Um, and the way this works, quite simply, is that Russian institutions, Russian banks will see that at current interest rates, which I think is something like 12 percent in, 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 you know, in rubles, mm. what that amounts to is if you go and buy gold in the West, where the lease rate is less than 2 percent, OK, and you get paid if you lease your gold, you get paid in, in, in dollars, you know, fiat, which is not attached to anything. Instead of that. You can you can buy that gold, arbitrage it into the issue department of the Central Bank of Russia. And what do you get? You get your gold plus 15 percent. Yeah, what's or 12 percent? I think it's like, you know, this is enough to do a proper arbitrage. It covers the cost of getting the stuff out of a Western vault. Into, so I can see that this would um, this is the easiest way for them to build. Uh, uh, reserves, uh, gold reserves, and uh, ensure that the ruble is always, always on a gold standard and cannot be challenged. And of course, once you do that, this is rather like dropping a nuclear bomb on mm. fiat currencies. Uh, and uh, this, as far as Russia is concerned, as far as Putin is concerned, uh, is concerned would actually elevate his position within Russian history to uh, what we're told he really wants. He wants to be compared with Peter the Great, you know. <laughs> so you can right. see this would be his legacy, very important. But the problem he has, and this is what came out of the BRICS thing, um, because, I mean, even back in January, um, uh, Lavrov said, uh, you know, that, that, that a new gold-backed currency would be on the agenda in August. Um, why was it not on, on the agenda? Well, the answer basically is that India and China turned around and said, no, we're not going for this. India is Keynesian. We have been appointing, or the Bank of England has been advising, let me put it that way, uh, the appointment of um, uh, the, the Reserve Bank of India governor yeah. you know, for 
decades and decades and decades. They are Keynesian. They uh, turned their back on gold for a very, very long time. Mm. They found it a pain in the backside that the people kept on insisting on buying gold as a, you know, as, as a sort of defense against a declining rupee. Um, eventually, they started acquiring some gold. Um, now, whether they've actually got it or not, of course, is something that we can argue about. Um, but you can see that they're not ready for this. And not only that, they don't want to upset us in the Western Alliance because they do a lot of trade with us. Um, you know, I mean, they, 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 you know, they're trying to do a trade deal with it with us or are we trying to do a trade deal with them? You know, they've got those links as well as the links into the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, um, slightly uneasy relationship with China and so on and so forth. So you can see why they didn't want to go for this. And I think the Chinese equally uh, had a problem because their approach to things is sort of rather evolutionary. You know, they say we've been around for two and a half thousand years and, you know, nothing gets done in a hurry. Uh, and so their attitude is, you know, let someone else make the mistakes and then we will decide policy. So I think that they would probably wait to see <clears throat> what happens to the dollar, what happens to the euro and so on and so forth before they are driven to um, uh, secure the value of the yuan by some sort of gold standard or reference to gold or whatever it might be. And that way, China doesn't get blamed for the problems we have in the West, for exacerbating them, if you see what I mean. So I can understand where they're coming from. But from Russia's point of view, plan A was a BRICS gold link currency. That has not gone forward. They've now got to think about plan B. How can we secure the, uh, the ruble? And it's interesting um, that all the dynamics of this have been completely changed by the Saudi position, who basically share exactly the same view. I mean, yeah. it's all very well saying, oh, you know, we'll take rupees. But I mean, they're damn well worthless in the hands of the Russians and, you know, worth not very much more in the hands of the Saudis. So, you know, this is not a long term solution to the current um, geopolitical uh, impasse, if you like, between the Asian hegemons and, and, and America. And I think, you know, so much to this, because <clears throat> there's so many ways you can spin off this. Um, now, if Russia was to do this, and as you say, it's not difficult to do. And, 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 and obviously, there are steps along the way, but not difficult for, for how are you explaining it? It's, this is achievable. Mm. The contagion of that spreading to the likes of China, other, other jurisdictions, would be that nuclear bomb you're talking about, I think. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, I think that's eventually where they're going. Mm. Uh, it's, a, it's a question of how rapidly they progress in that direction. And the position of uh, emerging market uh, currencies is equally interesting. Uh, and uh, that is that their economies, without the welfare burden, um, can actually quite easily go on to, let's say, a currency board type arrangement with a more stable currency, be it the ruble or the yuan or something, or even on gold if they've got some reserves themselves. Um, so that can be done. I mean, and it's, it's also important to understand that um, uh, Africa in particular has evolved now into a completely different animal from what we've been used to in the past. I mean, in mm. the past, the way we kept them in line, basically, was uh, through, um, you know, if you like, uh, 
overseas aid and all the rest of it. You know, we basically bought the politicians. And, uh, you know, we take the view a good politician is one who's bought and stays bought. You know, they've moved on from that now. And uh, China in particular has been responsible for achieving that. Um, it's tended to go to countries like Kenya, which is where I was brought up, so I'm familiar with it, and said, um, you know, we will invest in your infrastructure. Um, we will work on joint projects. Um, and, um, you know, we will advance your economy. And I can tell you the potential of Africa from, um, you know, all the railways and all the rest of it that are being built is absolutely enormous. I mean, we we built a railway from Mombasa up to, um, uh, I think, Kampala in Uganda. Um, that was, what, 1912, something like that. Uh, it was known as the Lunatic Express because it cost quite, cost this country quite a lot of money. It was... <laughs> <laughs> like, rather like HS2, but somewhere else. <laughs> um, and, uh, but what are the Chinese doing? They're building a new railway, um, I think, on, um, you know, on, a, on a wider gauge, because this is a meter gauge railway. Um, and it's going to go all the way into the DRC. You know, you can see, you can see what this means. Mm -hmm. And indeed, if you look at a map of Africa and sort of put on top of it, all the communications that China has put in and is planning to put in, it's like looking through a piece of lace at the map of Africa. I mean, it's everywhere, absolutely everywhere. This is a new um, period, a new phase. It's a new stage in the evolution of Africa into um, becoming um, a really productive uh, economy, uh, driven away from tribalism in particular, um, shedding the legacy of colonialism, which, um, you know, has good and bad and all the rest of it, shedding the legacy of post-colonial Africa, where we just continue to bribe guys, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, those politicians are becoming a bit more like yesterday. Uh, and so I think this is a huge, huge evolutionary step, which is not really fully appreciated in the West. And the other thing, if you look at, uh, uh, at uh, South America, I mean, I was fascinated to see that Argentina, which has now joined BRICS, um, was given a $1 billion equivalent loan from China so that it could pay its dollar loan to, to, to the IMF. Otherwise, you know, it was going to be yet another default, whatever, whatever. So... Um, you know, the, the basis whereby um, America goes and buys you effectively by lending you money which you can't pay, pay back, yeah. that is now being undermined completely as a policy. And, uh, you know, what are the Americans doing about it? I mean, actually, they're, they're pretty helpless in all this. All they can do is sort of thrash around and say, well, you know, we'll go and defeat Putin in Ukraine. Um, we'll, you know, we'll rattle sabers over Taiwan. But you know, realistically, there's nothing they can do, particularly in their financial position. Yeah, and I think <clears throat> that mentioned while I was still sort of on the China subject, interestingly, and <clears throat> there's been a lot of chat about this, the lack of the ability to arbitrage up to 120 buck per ounce premiums. And that's understandable. But <clears throat> I think what's important to understand here, two things going on, really. Um, you've got um, the, the COMEX <clears throat> siloed market where it is designed to suppress the price of gold. And you've got the Chinese market, which have incentivized in two tranches, 2010, buy gold. And, and funnily enough, when they said that, it never dipped below that price. They kept the, 
So they, they guaranteed that price, essentially. And then just a few months ago, um, opening up to the general population, uh, whereas before in 2010, we were talking about people who could afford to buy bullion bars. And it was really about that. And then suddenly you're opening up the guy who can click on a mouse and buy a gram or two and invest. And and the uh, the the incentive that China said, and this is only, what, three months ago, hmm. said, look, and gold was trading at $2,000 an ounce at this point in, in equivalent terms. And they said, this is the reason to buy this is because of the price, the gold price appreciation you will receive. But there's a circle within a circle here. And I think what they're trying to do is certainly on the, the fact is we've seen them openly talking about preparing their country for war. And, and that would be very uh, pragmatic of them given some of the stuff that's going on, um, but also to encourage um, these people to buy, uh, to, uh, the general population now, to also buy gold. Then what? And you're also saying, essentially saying, it won't go below that price. Because if you're saying that you'll, you'll, you'll get the gold price appreciation. So what we're seeing is really that is going on. They will limit the amount of gold, if necessary, that can uh, enter that market. So you've got the COMEX siloing it down and they siloing it up. And, but the amount of gold that's being bought is actually tapping into just one single global supply. So regardless of it being not able to be arbitraged directly, essentially it's having a massive impact. Now, I think two things that come off that is I was going to ask you, and then, and then I want to go over to Moscow, what we're seeing in Moscow. But I guess really I'm, I'm of the opinion, uh, my friend Nigel Farage is of the same opinion, um, and many people I speak to are of the opinion that if China is going to uh, um, repatriate or invade to Taiwan, whichever you want to call it, um, they would need to do it before Trump was elected. And so, um, because I don't think, I think Trump might be a little bit more of a, an aggressive figure. Uh, I think most people think, you know, to be honest, if you, if you've got a window of opportunity, uh, it's while Biden is, um, uh, post Afghanistan, uh, the, the inability for, uh, us to over to destroy Russia, uh, direct confrontation with Russia. Um, it, it is they're losing credibility. So you kind of wonder, what, what's your opinion? And I really love your opinion on this because some people think it's going to happen. Yeah. Do you think it'll happen? And obviously, could this be a reason they're uh, building gold reserves ahead of obvious sanctions that would come? Well, um, I mean, obviously, we will see in time. Um, but I take a slightly different view. Okay. The longer term uh, objective of China is to reabsorb Taiwan. But that is essentially a long-term objective. And I think it's an objective which the Chinese would hope to achieve with, um, you know, may, maybe persuasion of various sorts uh, rather than invasion. They will have watched uh, what happened in the Ukraine and seen the difficulties of um, invading a country which is determined to defend itself. I mean, when you get the citizens defending themselves. You know, that's the sort of hedgehog approach or the porcupine approach, you know, where, you know, you attack the porcupine and suddenly you find, okay, you know, 
you may be able to attack it, but you get lots of quills thrown at you in the process. You know, it's actually not that viable. And they've also got the further disadvantage that you've got this channel between, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the sea channel between them and the island. And that, I think, basically rules out um, uh, a military objective uh, as, as a, you know, as, as the preferred choice. And I think it rules it out also as a preemptive uh, activity. It just wouldn't work. So um, I, I think I would discount that. Now, if I was President Xi, I think after all the saber rattling and all the rest of it, I think probably what I would do is I would um, call a summit with the guys in Taiwan. Um, you know, maybe not quite a presidential eleven level to begin with, but I would say to them, you know, come on, chaps, look, you know, we're all same ethnic background. Let's work together, um, and we won't invade you. We'll give you that guarantee. I mean, it's just a very long-term objective that we want to work together. That's, you know, let's, mm -hmm. let's, let's just concentrate on that. And then, of course, that opens up all the Taiwanese technology to China immediately. What does America do? Oh, my God, this has gone away from us. Help. Mm. <laughs> so I think this, I, that would be my approach if I was President Xi. Now, he's probably cleverer than me, so he may not do it. I don't know. <laughs> Well, he does walk around with the art of war in his back pocket, by all accounts. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, wisely so. In which case, he will have read um, uh, the art of war that uh, the last thing you do is go and invade a place like Taiwan. I mean, Absolutely. Just, yeah, no, just you're right. Yeah. Really interesting, Alistair, that, you know, these are, these, are, these are really the kind of things we need to be thinking about. You know? So um, it makes more sense what you're talking about makes far more sense. Uh, China doesn't have to react immediately to anything other than they, they get invaded. But, um, but yeah, I mean, these things, I mean, they'll think a thousand years. Exactly. It's not their style. I mean, when they absorbed Hong Kong, that was as a result of direct threats by America yeah. against Hong Kong. Uh, and their intelligence, and we know this because it's publicly available, but their intelligence uh, warned them uh, of the, um, you know, the student riots were being provoked by uh, American intelligence agencies back in 2014. They knew all this. They forecast it. They, you know, the intelligence guys forecast this. Um, and, uh, you know, it didn't happen immediately, but it happened that autumn. So, um, you know, they, they understand the Americans' game. Um, and, uh, you know, they rather take the view that America is fundamentally weak, um, it hasn't actually got control over its own politics. Um, and therefore, they can afford to just take the Confucius uh, line. You know, we're around, we've been around. I mean, Confucius was what, 500 BC in our mm -hmm. temple? And, yeah. uh, you know, ever since, what have they done? They've just sort of gone with the flow. Everybody else makes the mistakes and um, they just defend themselves from those mistakes. And I cannot see that China's thinking is going to change from there. I mean, it's, it, it is interesting because the one thing that Xi has done is he has jumped down on all the corruption uh, which existed beforehand. And he's done this in such a way, where, you know, we, we look at the West and we think, this is brutal, this is terrible. And, uh, you know, the treatment of Uyghurs. I mean, that only came into the headlines when Trump started promoting it. This is why you shouldn't like the Chinese. You know, mm. so... 
you know, I think one's got to have, um, you know, you've got to sort of stand back from this and take a, a you know, a more general view. Uh, and, um, you know, I, it's rather like, you know, looking at the sort of debt situation. I mean, in the West, there's so many people who say, well, you know, China's going to go belly up, bust, whatever, and they've got a property crisis. Blah, blah, blah. They can handle it all. You know, mm-hmm. it never got, really got out of control. It got a bit extreme, yeah, but they can handle it all. And you know the key behind this, uh, Andy? The key is that they have got, second to Singapore, the highest savings rate in the world. Mm. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's always an approximate figure because it's, uh, you know, you, you, you take, um, you know, two elements of GDP, work out the difference, and that's your savings rate. But China has a savings rate of around about 40%. And what that means is that people put aside 40% of their money um, for the future. And this gives um, an incredible level of stability to prices. I mean, the rate of inflation uh, by CPI in China is zero. But of course, that worries all the Keynesian economists. Oh, you know, it's going to sink into deflation. I mean, what a load of rubbish. They know what they're doing. It's actually a very good economy. And, uh, you know, central government borrowing isn't, I mean, you know, they haven't got anywhere near the levels of us Westerners. Um, I think from memory, because I haven't looked at this recently, but I think from memory, you know, sort of government borrowing is something like 40% of GDP or outstanding debt is 40% of GDP, something like that. Obviously, there's also uh, a problem with um, uh, local um, regional authorities, as it were, but um, they're trying to centralize everything, which may or may not be a good thing economically. But, you know, um, they've got control over things. And, uh, you know, by and large, if as an individual in China, you keep yourself out of politics, I mean, you can do what you want. This is, you know, this is the reality of it. And it's a reality that we've rather lost sight of in our own countries. This is it's really enlightening. And I think, again, there's usually when I always question when there's a single narrative and it seems to be you listen to Bloomberg, you listen. It's always it's definitely centers around very much a a single narrative Um, and and much like China, uh, Russia bad. Ukraine good, uh, China bad, you know, it's, it's so basically it's a strange, strange thing. Um, but it is interesting that, um, that, that the, that, as you say, you just mentioned um, a 40% number. So the average Chinese saver, uh, <laughs> forget, no savings in America, but the average Chinese person saves something like, as you're saying in round numbers, 40%. But isn't it interesting that, they were they were opened up to um, gold as a saving class, yeah. and this is phenomenal to me because that that is actually going to solve so many of the issues. When people, uh, yes, the yuan may be up or down in price against the dollar, but the average person, what they see is my gold investments going up. My gold investments are very good investment. I think I'll have some more. And I think, again, you're dealing with a a mindset there that goes back thousands of years, which is, well, always, you know, I've gifted gold to weddings, um, to uh, whatever the occasion, birthdays, gold is given. And and it has a spiritual side to it, too. I can I can I can put this into, um, I think, some, uh, you know, sort of modern context, as it were. I mean, as I understand it, I don't speak Mandarin, obviously. <laughs> but I'm told that the word for money and gold is exactly the same. And 
independently of Roman law, which set out things that, you know, gold is money and the rest is credit. Um, and all us Westerners have it as the basis of our common law. It doesn't matter what our governments have said subsequently. That is fact. Um, the Chinese already got there by, you know, different routes, if you like. Um, so, yeah, they realized that it is money. Now, uh, after um, the death of Mao um, in 1983, um, uh, legislation was produced which appointed the People's Bank of China as the sole, um, uh, uh, the sole responsibility of acquiring and managing the state's gold reserves. Okay, so that was 1983. They started accumulating gold at a time when there was a massive bear market in gold, which took it down from, I mean, 1983, I think it was about four or 500 bucks, something like that, down to 250 or something in 2022. Coincidentally, in 2022, they'd obviously decided that they'd got enough gold. Now, I should also add that they... Um, uh, they increased their mine output, deliberately invested in mine output. Yeah. So they became the largest miner in the world by a country mile. They also um, ensured they continued to have a monopoly over refining. And they were even importing uh, gold from elsewhere or dory or whatever and refining it. And did it ever leave? Did it? Hell is like. No, it stayed there. So that was interesting. Now, they obviously decided that they'd acquired enough gold by 2022, to allow people to begin to acquire gold. And that was why the Shanghai Gold Exchange was set up again under the control of the People's Bank. It's 100% owned by the People's Bank. Uh, so <laughs> since then, um, as you rightly pointed out, they've, um, you know, they've even had television adverts, buy gold, whatever, whatever, mm. whatever. And, you know, the Chinese people haven't needed a lot of persuading. It's it's come out of the vaults. The, you know the, what we look at is the is the Shanghai Gold Exchange um, deliveries out of the vaults. It, it's really come out uh, in in into two markets. I mean, there's a bar market, uh, and at the same time, um, you've obviously got the jewelry market. So there is a little little bit of a dispute. And if you talk to the World Gold Council, they're really concentrating on the jewelry side. Um, but since then, I, you know, um, the people have accumulated, um, I think if you tot it up, something like 21,000 tonnes of, of gold on yeah. the basis of these deliveries. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it is fascinating. Now, how much has the, you know, have the Chinese state got? Well, mm. I, do know, I do know from um, various contacts that uh, this has been stuffed around various accounts, like the youth wing of the Communist Party, the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, and so on and so forth. And, um, you know, I, I even had one report from someone who um, uh, knew very well a, a Japanese businessman who had manufacturing capabilities uh, in China. Uh, and, uh, you know, he was a guest of one of the PLA generals. Uh, and the PLA, PLA general took him across the compound and, you know, showed him a stack of gold in a warehouse. I mean, you know, it was sort of enormous. Yeah, they've got this gold. And I reckon if you look at the, um, you know, the sort of, first of all, the capital inflows, because remember, that's all handled by the People's Bank. And later on, uh, exports, as all the manufacturing investments started producing next net exports, uh, I think it's perfectly reasonable to um, surmise that by uh, 2022, they've acquired something like 20 to 25,000 tons of gold. Um, 
bear in mind that this was there was a huge great bear market. It was easy enough to uh, you know sort of quietly you know get this stuff in um, on on falling prices. So um, under those circumstances, I mean China, you know, and since then, of course, as you rightly say, no gold ever leaves uh, the country. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they've continued to accumulate gold uh, from their mining operations, from their refining operations, bring in dory from other places like Mongolia and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, the, the result is that they've probably got, I don't know, somewhere between 25 and 30,000 tons. And that's the state on top of which um, there's a further sort of, I don't know, 20 odd thousand tons in the hands of the public. This is a very, very big slice of above ground stocks. And so they are well protected against the time when uh, Western fiat currencies uh, actually, you know, meet their Armageddon. Uh, you know, they the Chinese are already there. It's just they don't want to trigger it. You know, this, this is mm. the Russians are a lot more aggressive. But as far as the Chinese are concerned, no, we will let the West make mistakes. We will let Western currencies, um, you know, sink. We will let all that happen. We are not going to aggravate this situation. It's not our style. We will defend ourselves from it when it is absolutely obvious that we've got no alternative but to defend ourselves from a sinking currency regime. And I think that's very important for us all to understand. And we are now in a position where that sinking currency regime is becoming very, very obvious. Um, you know, I mean, interest rates are going to continue to rise. I mean, it, it's it, it's very, very interesting. I mean, people like Jim Grant, I'm told, you know, um, I was interviewed by someone yesterday and he had had Jim Grant on and he was saying that there seemed to be more and more of these senior guys uh, agreeing with me that interest rates are not going to go down. Um, mm. And, uh, you know, so... The reason they go up basically is because currencies are weakening uh, and in, in terms of their purchasing power. So, so um, you know, if you factor that in um, and you factor in uh, a credit crunch, which is the result of banks trying to reduce their balance sheets, and we've seen contraction in money supply um, in America, also um, the Eurozone in particular, UK as well, um, you know, this is basically undermining the economy as a whole, but it's a credit crunch and that's going to drive up interest rates. I mean, the idea that the Fed has got control over interest rates, forget it. You know, this is a credit crunch. What happens when banks start restricting credit? Well, the first thing that happens is people need more credit. Why? Because their businesses are slowing down and um, they need cash. So on that basis, this credit crunch has got quite some way to go. What does that do to government finances? Well, it puts America in a real pickle, um, you know, because, you know, not only are the foreigners, uh, you know, so trying to get out of, or, or they will be trying to get out of uh, US dollar financial assets um, because with higher interest rates, guess what? Bond yields rise, which means bond prices fall. It also means that equities get undermined as well. Um, and they've got $32 trillion worth of this stuff officially, mm. officially. On top of that, there's the euro dollar market. And this is the subject of an article uh, which will be published um, uh, tomorrow. Um, and it appears that the total size of dollars outside uh, the, this market is around about $90 trillion. $90 trillion, not in the banking system. And of that, $15 trillion is on non-U.S. 
bank balance sheets, in other words, extra deposits. So the amount of dollars um, in a crisis that are going to try and get back home where they belong is, it, you know, is absolutely phenomenal. And that, of course, will severely and very rapidly undermine the purchasing power, if you like, the faith and credit, put it that way, in uh, that fiat currency. Yeah, and when we look at the US dollar, yeah, obviously the euro dollar market was quite an eye opener to speak to Jeff Schneider um, the last episode. He's really, really good. So very few people understand it, and and it was interesting. Um, but I think now we're just talking about gold very, very briefly. Now you're talking about yes, I'm, I must say my my information is so much slimmer to yours. I think it's about twenty five thousand tons owned by citizens, and and I agree it's got to be close to thirty thousand tons. Um, I mean, this, 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 again, this empirical stuff comes to us through various ways. And, and I think we, we're agreeing very closely, somewhere close to 60,000 tons held by China. Now, if you weigh that up against the 8,133 tons. Which may or may not exist. Uh, well, and, and it may be there, but how rehypothecated is it, I guess, yeah. is the question. Uh, we don't know. Again, who knows? Because even when, you know, when, when Germany wanted their 300 tons back in 2013, what, what, it's going to take seven years initially. Yeah. Uh, they wouldn't even allow the, the Bundesbank um, uh, to, to, to enter the vaults to inspect it, the inspectors in. No, they weren't even allowed to do that. So obviously it smells badly. Um, so who, where would I better be positioned? Well, clearly, as this currency system, as this, this air comes out of the fiat system, where would I want to be? Well, I'd certainly want to be um, in, uh, in the Chinese camp. And, um, and I, I think it's, it's pretty amazing to me. It's always amazed me how little uh, the average American understands about Gold. I mean, obviously, um, UK slightly better. Germany definitely. Uh, most of Europe, because of, um, of obviously, they have a history that makes them uh, very much more um, look at gold in, in as, as a as a hedge against uh, trouble. But I mean, it amazes me, uh, Alistair, that. You know, I mean, even even down to you to look at the average Indian farmer, you, you know, cycling down a dusty path. There are probably kilos of gold he's inherited or they've inherited dowries, one thing or another. The average American must own a ring on their finger. Um, if you offered them a gold coin or a Hershey bar, they take the Hershey bar. I mean, it is amazing to me. Just think when gold does find its true value. Whatever that is, whatever that is, and and it's certainly coming. When it does, where does that that the the the, the this tips the balance to the average Indian farmer could go to America and buy land, buy houses. I mean, Lord, I mean, you know, when you're talking about potentially say ten, maybe five, seven, ten thousand, you know, could be anything for us. We don't know. I mean, I'm not even going to guess what it is. But it's a hell of a lot higher than now. So where does that put the average uh, Chinese person? I mean, it, this is amazing to me that it's, it misses so many people. Well, um, if you sp spread, you know, somewhere between twenty and twenty-five thousand tons amongst one and a half billion people, um, it's not quite so much gold as 
you know, as one might might think. Mm. But um, I think the other thing is that um, an awful lot of people who are gold bugs in our camp um, are looking at it completely the wrong way. They they think that it's an investment, um, you know, which they buy it, you know, if they're lucky at 1800 and they sell at 2000 or something mm. like that. You know, mm. it's not an investment. It's money. And it's the superior form of money to credit. Uh, and uh, so you acquire it as a hedge against the collapse of the purchasing power of, of credit. So, um, you know, as to, yeah, you know, what the price is going to be, say, in a year or two years' time, I would assume that the value of gold is going to be broadly unchanged. But what will happen is the value of credit will collapse. Mm. And that obviously gets reflected in... Um, uh, you know, purchasing, uh, you know, sort of rate, say, between dollars or euros and gold or whatever, um, which makes you think that gold's gone up. I mean, it's not gold going up. Now, eventually that will happen mm. because, you know, as to your point about the Indian owning some gold, um, he will then be in a very superior position because a collapse of credit basically puts everything on the market, absolutely everything, mm. and probably at zero value measured in gold. I mean, one of my favorite stories, which I picked up in, in um, the autobiography of uh, Stefan Zweig, who is one of the most famous Austrian authors who lived through the Great Inflation, um, was that uh, in um, 1923 in Germany, you could have bought a six-bedroom house in a smart part of Berlin for $100. And what was $100? Well, at 20.67, it was less than five ounces. Mm. So, that is what happens when when the value of credit collapses. Um, forget what the price is in in you know in paper marks or paper dollars yeah. or whatever it might be. You know the gold price. You'll find that the, at that stage, the purchasing power of gold will absolutely rocket. But that's not what we're talking about at the moment. All we're talking about is the purchasing power of unattached credit sinking. And it's going to sink at such rates that uh, not only are high interest rates, I mean, these are not high interest rates anyway. Um, these levels are going to persist and the interest rates are going to go even higher. And if you think about that, the, the effect on businesses which um, have over leveraged themselves uh, debt wise at um, zero interest rates, um, negative interest rates in the, the European Union, uh, you can see that, um, you know, there's, there is a lot of pain to come. And um, how, how are the, the authorities going to respond to that? Well, let's look at the central banks. They're all in negative equity. Why? Because they ramped up the bond market and then bought bonds right at the top. It's called QE. And now they're deeply underwater and not admitting it. How are they going to rescue banks whose balance sheets come under pressure from falling bond prices um, in particular, and also um, non-performing loans. I mean, particularly from the, um, you know, the wider economy, because 80% of the economy is small and medium-sized businesses, not the, you know, the big, big stuff that always fills the, the newspaper headlines. I mean, you know, this, how are they going to do this? I mean, to try and rescue the entire system uh, when the system itself is in negative equity, mm. basically means that... Um, you're going to get, uh, you know, a massive expansion of the quantity of senior credit. And it is credit. This is what 
the central banks issue in the form of notes and also obligations in the form of reserves and whatever to, to commercial banks. That is a senior form of credit. It's not money. It is credit. And amazingly, I mean, I have so many economists who tell me that, no, 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 no. No, what the central bank issues uh, and base money is money. It's replaced gold. Oh, come on. <laughs> they don't understand it. They really don't. There's a very nasty lesson for us all, I'm afraid. I, I don't welcome this at all, Andy. I think this is, this is going to be terrible. Um, I mean, you know, the poor, and by this I also mean pensioners and all the rest of it, ordinary people who have relied on the state um, to provide them with pensions and so on and so forth. I mean, they're going to get wiped out. This is not good. This really is not, not good. No, you're right. You're right. Um, now, interesting, just swinging slightly um, uh, to a different um, angle here. I, I, I'm Central bank digital currencies. That's, I, I know. Okay, so this is interesting because, I mean, I have my views, one thing or another, but, uh, you know, people say they're coming. Um, that was interesting, my, my, my discussion with Jeff Schneider last week. Um, and he kind of made me think. Actually, when you think about it, um, yes, there's going to be many efforts to do this, but blockchain technology is now out of the bag. Decentralized blockchain technology is out of the bag. Essentially, it's an existential threat to the banking system because why do I need a bank to handle my finances when I have the trustless blockchain, I can do everything on it. I don't need the bank anymore. Interesting. So thoughts on that? Well, uh, the flaw in that argument, if I may say so. Yeah, is, please. Is, is that you're putting a fiat currency onto a blockchain. I mean, do you really want it? <laughs> I mean, forget it. <laughs> No, no, but but I think but I think just as you know, obviously, just as a process, obviously, we can put yeah. we can put any asset onto the blockchain, gold, whatever. But but I think in this instance, you're talking about well, once you once you've got a, an automated KYC AML procedure for your fiat currency, currently fiat currency, but but really, central bank digital currencies are about fiat currencies. So I mean, this is what they're trying to impose on us with this whole social credit system that perhaps goes with it, as Nigel Parage will, will attest to after being debanked. Um, but it's interesting because I, I just, again, it, it's, it's, yes, it's dealing with fiat, but it's a stepping stone. Once blockchain te technology is out of the bag, you can't put it back. It is accessible to everybody. Yeah, but I, I, I think I think I think it's a fashionable argument. Let me put it that way. Yes, okay. uh, let me demolish it. Okay. <laughs> Go for it. I'll say the first thing, and that is that um, the last time there was a, a replacement form of currency for something that was collapsing was at the time of the French Revolution. You had the mm -hmm. Athenaeum, which was collapsing in value. Everybody hated it. And then they came out with the Mandat Territorio, this new currency, wonderful. But that was gone within six months. So, you know, <laughs> this idea that you can, you know, replace one fit or, sub, you know, um, add to one fit by producing another. No, 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 no. No, it doesn't actually deal with the underlying problem. So that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is that, in terms of implementing this in the way in which the Bank of International Settlements, who set up a committee to look at this and came up with their recommendations. I mean, they want this as a means of the state controlling 
where the stimulus uh, actually goes to in the economy, which means that the state decides which businesses to support. Well, mm. that's a disaster for a start. But anyway, we'll gloss over that. Uh, the problem is that if you're going to do that, then, uh, you know, every business and every person has got to have an account with the central bank. Now, imagine just how long it would take the Bank of England. I mean, the Bank of England have rejected this, incidentally. But if they were to go down this route, how long would it take for them to, um, you know, sort of set up the software, test it, test it, committee meetings and all the rest of it, you know, the whole thing. I mean, they'd still be looking at it in 10 years time. Right. Now, let's look at the American situation, which actually um, is probably the most important. So far as I'm aware, every bank in America, or sorry, every politician in America is bankrolled by the banks when it comes to getting elected, Republican, Democrat or other. Now, are these turkeys going to vote for Christmas? I don't think so. They're not going to vote for something that cuts out the commercial banks. Now, the commercial banks, I think, have kept very quiet on this. I think very with very good reason. I mean, you know, if I was, um, say, on the committee uh, considering this at J.P. Morgan, I think I would probably dismiss this other hand or say, well, you know, it's so far away. I mean, you know, you can get, um, uh, you know, stories like China are trying it out here and whatever. But, you know, this is not national currency stuff at all. Um, uh, the I think it was, um, uh, uh, was it... Um, one of the one of the Caribbean islands tried tried to do this. Uh, Barbados tried to do this. You know, mm. come on, that's not a you know this is not a serious a serious attempt at running uh, you know a CBDC. I mean, you know, I don't think it's going to happen for the very simple reason that it's nobody's interest for it to happen. And uh, in any event, the collapse that we're likely to see in the purchasing power of existing fiat currencies, I think, is likely to be so rapid to, um, if you like, preclude it actually happening in the first place. I mean, particularly if the Russians, as I say, are forced to go down the line of, you know, attaching, securing the value of the ruble to gold. I mean, that's going to change everything. It really is. Absolutely. And I think that 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 is kind of full circle to where we started, because that that is um, mind boggling. And I think most people haven't even thought of that or, or have dismissed that as implausible. But there's certainly little footprints around the way. I was privileged to to have a chance to catch up with Glezhnev's um, re recent, it was only about five weeks ago, I think it was. And he was talking about his two options, the option one, which was the not the immediate option, which is a SDR type of, type of basket. And obviously that can't work because of the disproportionate, um, you know, you can't have, uh, you know, some of these BRICS countries are, are just, their, their balance of payments just wouldn't work in a situation like that. However, his, his, his major option was to, to create a 20 commodity, his words, a 20 commodity, and this is recently, 20 commodity gold back currency, or at least partially gold back currency which in his mind um, is going to um, enable uh, this a, a commodity currency to be equalized. And in the meantime, I don't think it's a coincidence that um, we are seeing a large premium being offered. Now, this is interesting, a hugely large premium being offered consistently every single day. And this I know people who are arbitraging this, literally to pay $40 more per ounce for gold, um, but, 
but as a, as a barter, it's nothing to do with cash. This is to do with somebody who wants to buy oil, needs to buy oil on the, on the, on the uh, markets and they see it at 90, 100 bucks, whatever it is. Um, they can go and buy gold for in the, at the spot price plus a tiny premium and literally barter that. And, you know, this trade actually, what people forget, this trade that was launched um, in uh, March 2022, uh, which where there was a grand price, and then it all was very much up in the air as to what was going on, has never stopped happening. And I know of people who are arbitraging this particular trade. And why are they offering that much more? Because they're just swapping one, one en the energy for physical. But this bullion is coming into, into Russia. And I think this is part of a process, to me, of building gold reserves by using your assets. And it's something very interesting. Alice, even the spot price at the fixes, I watched the fixes, I watched the live fixes. There, the spot Moscow price is always about three bucks higher, constantly. But for, but but it's currently trading at April prices, April futures prices, about forty bucks above December. Something's going on here. Well, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think that's fascinating, uh, and and it does actually make so much sense. I mean, just put yourself in the shoes of the Saudis, for example. Yeah. Um, you know, are you going to accept? Are you going to charge? I mean, the current price of WTI is ninety bucks or something. Are you going to accept um, Indian rupees for you know ninety buck oil? Yep. Or are you going to accept, say, um, say to someone, uh, well, you can have oil. Um, we'll charge you seventy dollars a barrel if you pay in gold. Hmm. Well, you know, why not go into the market, buy the gold? I mean, you're getting it at a decent discount, if you like, from uh, the market price. So you're linking the price of oil to gold in a sense. And I think that's the important point that actually you're making behind this. This is going on. And um, it's I think this is very much something that I think Rus the Russians understand in particular. Yeah. Um, can I circle back a little bit on what you were saying about Glazyev? I mean, Glazyev started off with this, um, you know, basket of, of uh, commodities and all the rest of it. Um, but I don't think that's practical at all. I mean, really, it's not practical. Um, the, I mean, I ran a number of tests on the gold price, looking at commodities priced in gold going back to, you know, as far as I could. I mean, I got IMF um, statistics back, I think, to about 1992. I would have liked to have gone further, but that was as far as I could go. Uh, and um, it was quite clear that priced in gold, I mean, commodities were sort of, you know, doing that. Mm. Uh, just sort of, you know, there were fluctuations, yeah, but they were very small compared with the fluctuations in paper currencies. Mm. And today they haven't risen over time. Um, and if you look at the price of oil in particular, uh, from 1992, um, the price has fallen by roughly 30 odd percent measured in gold. So um, now this is a very important point because looking at it from the point of view of the Saudis and the Russians and the Iranians, the West is ripping them off to the tune of 30% compared with the oil price back in the early 1990s. Mm. So, yeah, this is why they would be keen to sell. I mean, they could quite easily, you know, rather than accept a rubbish currency, they could, you know, quite afford to give a discount because they know 
that um, you know the price of oil measured in gold is low. The answer basically is you accumulate gold, and then uh, at some stage, you know the value in terms of what you produce, whether it's oil or other commodities or whatever, um, will actually increase. So this way, you're divorcing yourself completely from the West's fiat currency system, and I think that's a very important point. So. What you've said there, I think, is something that everybody should actually take note and think about. And and we're right back to the to to, to where we circled where we where we started, which is essentially um, the backing of the ruble with gold, and all of these little pieces of the puzzle seem to all add up. And and um, but you know, Alistair, whenever you come on, I I, I mean, we could I, I could I uh, by the way. I do owe you a lunch, <laughs> and I do do. Um, whenever you come on, um, it, 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 it throws so many thoughts up in the air. We, we, we could go on and on and on, but you've given us an hour of your time, and, and I really do thank you um, for sharing with us um, these thoughts. And, and I, I, I love to get these opinions because you know we, it's a balance of a balance of where, you know, to, to, to discern what's going on, you need all sides of the picture. And you really helped us today uh, and our subscribers to look at the other side of the picture here and look at the wider side of the picture. But, um, but thank you so much for, for, for joining us today. Well, no, um, thank you. Thank you and Kinesis for helping me spread the word because really ultimately what I want is people to understand um, what is actually going on, understand what money is and what credit is, and understand, therefore, how they might protect themselves from what I see as being some very, very violent um, financial events um, in the not-too-distant future. Uh, so, no, thank you very much indeed for giving them the platform to be able to do that. Well, as as Robert Kiyosaki said when we um, when he came on our show, how much physical do you own? Well, I know you do, <laughs> but I, this, that's a question for our subscribers. Indeed. I think that's the only question to know. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I agree with that entirely. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Alistair. Thank you very much, Andy. All right. Thank you, Andrew McGuire and Alistair McLeod for another fascinating discussion. And remember to our whole community, buy physical and make sure it's one-to-one -one and understand the difference between what Andy affectionately calls the casino paper gold and silver markets and the actual physical gold and silver markets. They're not the same. Don't be fooled. So there you have it. That's all we have for you today on another amazing episode of Live from the Vault. Now, please help keep spreading the word about this channel by hitting that like button if you haven't already done so. Share this information and subscribe if you haven't subscribed. And if you click on that bell right there, you'll be notified as each episode goes live. And with that, we'll see you next time right here on Live from the Vault. See you then.